Jesus is our Saviour, we pray it. Amen. Well, Jesus Christ is coming back, friends. And the Bible tells us somewhat of what to expect. The Bible tells us that all those who are alive will see him. The Bible doesn't pause to explain how everybody on the surface of a round globe can see one man all at once. God knows what to do. He knows how to answer those questions. We'll see it all. We'll understand it all one day when we're there. That won't be the great question of that day. We will see him, the man, Jesus Christ, but with great glory and power. Those who've died before then, your great aunts and great grandparents and so on, they will rise. If we're dead when it happens, we will rise. Everybody will rise. Everybody who's ever lived will be there on that day. People we read about in history books. People who long since forgotten previous generations. People who lived in this place 200 years ago. They'll rise. Everyone who's ever lived will be there in the presence of Jesus Christ when he comes back. And that will bring, we're told in the Bible, again, you can ask many questions about this, and many of them, the only thing we can say is wait and see how God does it all. But we're told that when Jesus Christ returns, this will be a great renewal of the whole universe, not just this planet, but galaxies and stars and supernovae and everything that's out there. God will make it new. The regeneration of all things, we read elsewhere in Jesus' teaching. The melting down of this spoiled, cursed world under the curse of sin and decay and death. The melting down of this world and the production of a brand new universe. Heavens and earth, the Bible says, where righteousness lives. What a day. And yes, that day will be a day of justice. As we've sung, a day of judgment. A day of the righting of wrongs. A day where nobody could say anymore, that's unfair. Not the victim of fraud or abuse or bullying. Not the country or people who've been badly treated by their more powerful neighbours. Nobody would be able to say, that's unfair. Because God will do everything right and he will put everything right. This, this Israel Gaza has been in the news. I have to mention it. The, um, the discussion on the television last night, one of the, one of the pundits said, there is no answer to it. There's no answer. We can't solve it. It's not good, but how do you fix it? And this very experienced commentator said, it can't be fixed. When Christ returns, God will fix it all. All of it will be fixed. But because this is a day of justice, it's a day of separation. As we read in Matthew's Gospel, the teaching of Jesus, like a shepherd with sheep and goats, and a group that once was mixed, that today is mixed altogether, will divide into two, with two very different destinies. Lord Jesus talks about eternal life, and he equally talks about eternal judgment. And if there's no end, as I was saying earlier, if there's no end to the stretching out of east and west, there's no end to eternity. There's no end to that time. Can you believe it? No cut-off point, no finish. I spent a time ministering in, in South Wales, in Port Talbot, perhaps you know it, and um, 
maybe people generally go through Port Talbot, don't they, on the M4 to nicer places. But there we were in Port Talbot. And it actually has a, a, a wonderful long beach. Um, it's got kind of coal dust in it, so people don't, don't tend to visit it as a beach. But it's a beautiful location, and the beach stretches out for several miles, almost round to Swansea. And I said to the people there, could you, could you count for me the grains of sand on that beach? Can you imagine it? How many would there be? You could say each grain is a hundred years. One, two hundred, three hundred, four. Massive number. But you could get through all that. You're nowhere near the end of eternity. It goes on forever. And eternal life, on the one hand. Eternal punishment, on the other hand. This is the day of separation. And we're going to look at this as Jesus taught it in the parable of it's headed in this Bible, the parable of the wise and foolish virgins. It's, we could say, bridesmaids today. The parable of the ten bridesmaids. And it seems to me, as I was thinking about this, that weddings back then and weddings now have this in common. A wedding is a big deal, isn't it? If you're invited to a wedding, that's no small thing. Typically, you'll get the date 18 months in advance, and you block out that day. Whatever else you want me to do on that day, I can't do it. I'm going to a wedding. And then there are preparations for the wedding. There is the, perhaps the choosing of a, a new dress for the ladies. Never knew how many different dresses and dress shops there are. <laughs> <laughs> and the choosing perhaps of a new suit for the gents, a little bit more generous around the middle maybe. And uh, that's usually sort of 15 minutes in Marks and Spencers or whatever, isn't it? And you come out then you have to go back because you bought the wrong thing. But a lot goes into this. A lot goes into a wedding. And that's just if you're a guest. That's just if you're going to be sitting at the back. What present are we going to get? What's the guest list? What can we, what can we afford off the, guest li of the, the wish list for them? Um, where do we park? Uh, it's a big thing, a wedding. And I assume it was the same back in the days of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there were some differences. In Jesus' day, you wouldn't get engaged, you'd get betrothed. So a husband-to-be and his, and his wife-to-be would make binding promises to each other. They would make vows to each other, they'd be committed to each other, but they wouldn't necessarily be together for perhaps another year or more. You remember this in the Nativity story, don't you? Joseph and Mary. It was an awkward moment when Mary was found to be pregnant. They were betrothed, they would made solemn promises to each other, but it looked as though she'd broken her promise because she was pregnant. Mm -hmm. And Joseph thought that he would divorce her quietly. They were already married, but they'd never been intimate as a couple. They'd not set up home together yet. So you have the betrothal, and then there's a certain set day when the bride and groom come together, the wedding day. And from what we learn from this parable, and it's kind of confirmed elsewhere as well, so I'm told, from what we learn... There would be processions. The groom would come out with his groomsmen, and the bride and her bridesmaids would come out to meet him, and then there'd be a happy procession through the town to the new home where they would go in and have a great feast lasting several days, a great party full of good things. And this procession, evidently, in the story, was to be a procession at night. So there'd need to be some lights. So the bride has asked 10 of her best friends to come with her 
and hold little lamps. They don't have phones and things, of course, but they had little clay lamps with oil, and the oil would burn through a wig, and that's how they'd light the way for this procession. You need lights, don't you? You can't stumble around in the dark. So ten young women, unmarried themselves, ten virgins, ten bridesmaids would help with this procession. But somewhat disappointingly, it seems that five of them have taken a rather casual approach to the whole thing. Perhaps they said to each other, look, I'm sure we won't be waiting for long. Don't, don't bother wasting your money on extra oil. We'll just have the little bit in our laps and that will be fine. But it wasn't fine. It wasn't enough. Or others maybe said, look, um, if our oil runs out, we'll, we'll just ask the other girls. There's plenty there. We don't need to worry about that ourselves. We don't need to fuss about getting enough oil for ourselves. The other girls will help us out. But in the event, they couldn't. They couldn't help them. Or maybe they said to themselves, well, the bridegroom's a, a, a generous sort of chap. He's pretty easy going. I'm sure nobody will mind if we don't actually have light in, in our little lamps. Um, and he'll let us in anyway. It'll be fine. You'll see. But it wasn't fine. It wasn't fine at all. Just really at this point in the sermon, may I stop and ask you, is it possible that some of you here with us today are casual regarding eternity? Prone to think, well, we'll, we'll be okay, we'll, we'll muddle through. If you prepare thoroughly for a wedding, and I'm sure you would, how much more for the return of Christ? Well, as the story goes on in Matthew 25, suddenly the bridegroom appears, verse 6. He's coming. Go out to meet him. And that's it. This is the procession. Now, go and join the procession. You're going to process to the house together. There's been a delay. That's not unusual at weddings, is it? You know, you can have a program and, and it, it, does it ever run to time? You're sort of waiting for the photographer to finish and so on. There's been something of a delay, to be fair. But when the bridegroom's there, Nobody's going to wait for these bridesmaids. It's not their day. They should be ready to go. And they're not. They're not. Five of them are not ready at all. There's no time to sort things out. <coughs> and so this ties in very much with a theme of Jesus' teaching that you've read in the Gospels and heard preached many times, I'm sure. This return of Christ that we're talking about then, this parallel with the return of Christ and the wedding day, this will be a sudden thing. There's no build-up. There's no two-day warning. It's not like the weather where you see on, on the news there's this circling stuff in the Atlantic and they tell you another named storm is going to come and you say it's going to be here in two days. Usually they're right, aren't they, to be fair? Occasionally they get it wrong. But usually what they say will happen in a couple of days' time will happen. There's nothing like that with the return of Christ. It happens abruptly, immediately. There's no advance warning. It could be any moment. It literally could be any moment. Jesus says elsewhere in his teaching that when he returns, people will just be living their normal lives. Some people will be getting married. Some people will be eating and drinking. Some people will be sat at a table in a restaurant. They put their order in. But instead of the waiter bringing the food, Christ returns. It's as instant as that. Other people will be setting off on a journey, perhaps to visit a church on a Sunday like we're doing today. But instead of arriving at their journey's end, Christ returns while they're still en route. It's as abrupt as that. It really is. 
And that's important for us to know, isn't it? Because it adds a sense of urgency to Jesus' teaching. We might think if it wasn't for the abrupt return of Christ, we might think, well, look, I'm probably going to have my three score years and ten. You know, I'm in reasonable health. I mean, there's no guarantees, is there? Um, but usually people live out a reasonable lifespan in this country in these days. So I think, well, you know, there's a time in life to sort out spiritual things, and that time isn't now. There's plenty of time when I'm older. I look at it when I'm retired. I look at it when my kids have grown up. I look at it when I've finished my working life. That's the time to sort all this out. Friends, the time is now. It's now. How long have you got, really? We don't know, do we? We really don't know. Whatever needs to be done in your life to be ready for the return of Christ, it can't be put at the bottom of a long to-do list and a bucket list. You know, I'll, 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 I'll go on a world cruise, um, I'll attend my granddaughter's wedding, and at, right at the bottom, prepare myself spiritually. It's, no, we need to prepare ourselves today for the return of Christ. No time to sort things out when he comes back. It's too late. It's too late. We're used to that, I think, aren't we, in life? How many people left it too late when they were revising for their exams. Suddenly it's the morning of the exam. All those good intentions, too late. How many people, more sadly, left it too late with their health? Doctor warned, you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't keep doing this. Yes, one day I'll sort it out, one day I'll give up the drinking, the overeating, the exercise and so on will all come in. But it's too late now. You've had the stroke. No turning it back. With Christ's return, there will be a day when it's too late. So back in the story of the, of the bridesmaids, you see that as the bridegroom comes, the five unprepared bridesmaids pester their friends for oil. Our lamps are going out. But there isn't any oil to be had. There isn't enough to go round. They can't share. They need the oil for themselves. And this stands for the fact that you might have the, the best Christian alive in your family, the strongest, most faithful saint alive on this planet at this moment. But when the Lord returns, there'll be no use to you. They can't help you then. You could be married to a strong Christian man or a faithful Christian wife. You could be part of a, a group of friends who all go to church together and you enjoy being in that group. And some of them are Christians and you know they are and you've quite, quite got around to it yet. When he returns, those friends can't help you. And they will go in one direction and you will go in another. A great separation. These, these five casual bridesmaids, they, they didn't prepare themselves. They, they weren't ready. They hadn't planned ahead. They hadn't got themselves organized. But to be fair to them, they, they do want to be part of the wedding. They want to be part of the whole thing. So as the bridegroom comes and the five bridesmaids learn up, not the ten who are supposed to be, the five line up there for the procession. The other five run off in the middle of the night, midnight, 
to wake up the people who sell oil. Wake up, quick, sell us some oil. Oh, well, I'm in bed, don't wake me up. No, we must have oil, we must have it now, quick. So there is a certain desire there on their part, a certain enthusiasm, really, to be in the kingdom of God. But it's a shame, isn't it? They didn't apply that enthusiasm a bit earlier when they had time to do something about it. Now it's all happening. They want to be part of it. But it's too late. It's too late. The moment is gone. So they get the, the oil, finally, they get it together, they get their lamps going. The procession has made its way through the town and round this street and up that street and, and they've gone into the house and these, these five are trying to catch up. By the time they catch up, the procession's inside and the door's shut. And that easygoing groom, who they assumed really wouldn't mind too much and wouldn't be too bothered, he turns out to be uh, quite, quite fierce in the end. He turns out to be rather unwelcoming of these foolish bridesmaids who, after all, have shamed his wife, they have shamed his bride on her wedding day. They should have been there in the procession, and they weren't. It's shameful and disgraceful to treat her that way, so he will not let them in. You're not welcome here. You should have been ready, and you weren't. The door is shut. Or, in the words that Jesus says, as they say, Lord, Lord, open to us. They want to come in. They want to be part of it. They're keen to be part of it. There's an enthusiasm there to be part of that wedding. And he says to them, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. And who wouldn't want to be part of a wedding feast? One of the things that all weddings have in common, surely, is that they're tremendously happy occasions. A bride grinning from ear to ear all day. Nobody's ever seen her so happy. The groom the same. Who wouldn't want to be there? Who would want to join in and enjoy it with them? And it's encouraging to us, I think, that this is the picture that Jesus Christ uses for eternity. One of the pictures. For his people, it's a time of great joy and happiness. It's like a great wedding. We know in the scriptures that it is a wedding, in fact. We're told the marriage supper of the Lamb, the coming together of Christ and his bride, the church, with great rejoicing. There will be every kind of good thing to enjoy in that day, we're told. Every blessing, blessings and good things from God that we have never thought of things that we wouldn't think possible. How precious is your loving kindness, O God, we read in one of the Psalms. The children of men put their trust under the shadow of your wings. They're abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house. You give them drink from the river of your pleasures. With you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. There are things that the people of God will taste in that day that we couldn't begin to conceive or understand now in your presence O Lord there's fullness of joy at your right hand of pleasures forevermore even at the end of Psalm 23 you know it surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever And if we were to turn to the last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22, we'd see some of these things spelled out for us. 
place where there's no more sadness, no more pain, no more suffering, sorrow, regret. And the, the Word of God takes us through these things and shows us some of the marvels and the blessings of eternity. And perhaps the greatest of all and the most remarkable, they will see His face. We will see His face. We'll gaze upon the very face of our God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And somehow that will be the greatest and most wonderful thing of all. So it's a wedding feast for those who go in. It's a great day of gladness, a day that people will want to be part of. And if this parable is our guide, people will want to be part of it then. And think maybe they should be part of it then and they can be part of it then when Jesus returns. We will be unprepared. So the warning is to us now. Are you unprepared? Are you inclined to treat these things in somewhat of an offhand way? Are you inclined to think, well, yes, there's Jesus Christ and there's church and there's Christianity. And I go to church sometimes, you know, when there's nothing else really to do. And it's, it's on my list of things to do. But, you know, things to do with Jesus Christ. I mean, I've got a Bible at home, um, but, you know, it's quite complicated to read. Usually I've got other things I prefer to do to relax. Life's stressful enough as it is. And, and, and yeah, pray. I mean, I pray when I need something. If I, something's not right in my life, I'll pray about it. But um, seek the Lord seriously for salvation? Well, that, to some people, seems a little bit much, a little bit over the top. But it won't seem over the top when Christ returns. What is it we need to be ready for that day? What is the oil that should be in the lamp now? Turn with me, if you've got a Bible, to Colossians chapter 1, verse 27. Colossians chapter 1, verse 27. This is a verse that's helped me to understand our situation. Colossians 1, 27. I'm just finding it here. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Here we are. I'm just looking at the last phrase of that verse, really. Which simply says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Well, that's what we're talking about, isn't it? The hope of glory, the hope of being part of that wedding feast. The hope of being included in the glories to come. The hope of being in the house of the Lord forever. The hope of seeing his face. A face of love and kindness towards us. We hope of seeing him face to face. And uh, Paul says, yes, there is a hope of glory for those who have Christ in them. Christ living in them. If Christ lives in the soul, if Christ has taken up residence in the inner man, if Christ is on the throne of the heart, then we have a hope of glory. It's more, isn't it, than just understanding certain things about Christ. If we had a, a Bible knowledge quiz of, of stories and Sunday school lessons, there'd be people here, probably all of you, who do very well and answer the questions very well, I'm sure. But it's more than that, isn't it? It's more than knowing the sound doctrines and the truths of the Bible. That's important, but it's more than that. It's more, isn't it, than doing certain Christian things. You know, I don't swear. I don't get drunk when everybody else is getting drunk. I'm waiting for marriage, I'm not going to have a girlfriend, I'm doing all the Christian things, but it's more even than that. 
Christ in the heart. The living presence of Christ within us. Christ himself shaping our lives, our attitudes, our behavior. Sin still lives in us. All of us here who are Christians would testify to that with sadness. But does Christ also live in you? Is there a different principle at work, a pure heavenly principle, guiding you in the things of God, inspiring you, motivating you that when you do fail and fall into sin, you come back to him and confess. And you try again and you keep trying again because the oil doesn't run out because Christ himself is living in you. This is what we need. Nothing else will do. <coughs> Nothing else will replace Christ in the heart. And this comes again and again, actually, in the New Testament, in the teaching of Paul and the others, when Paul wrote from prison to the Philippians. He explained to them, I'm in prison and I'll probably be released. But actually, if they kill me, if they execute me, um, I'd be quite happy about that because for me to die is gain. And, and we'd all hope that, wouldn't we? We'd all do, when I die, I'm going to be with the Lord. I'm not going to suffer. I'm not going to pay for my sins. I'm not going to be punished for all eternity. I'm going to be with the Lord. For me to die is gain. But first of all, he says, for me to live is Christ. You can say, for me to die is gain, if you can first say, to live is Christ for me. He's my priority. He's my life. In fact, Paul says that a bit later on in Colossians. You also will appear with him in glory when Christ who is your life appears. If he's your life now, today, then you will appear with him in glory tomorrow. Even Jesus Christ said it in his own teaching when he spoke with Nicodemus, the leading professor was he or, or, or rabbi he was he was high up he was the leader of the jewish people we're told he was as big as that and he came to jesus by night because he didn't want anybody to know he was there and he said to him teacher we know you've come from god and jesus said to him i tell you unless you're born again you'll never see the kingdom of god you must be changed you nicodemus you must be savingly changed you must be born a second time you must be born from above the Spirit of Christ must come and live in your heart. Christ in us, the hope of glory. A new attitude to Christ then, a new living trust in Him. If He will be everything in eternity, and He will, then He must be everything to me today. In your hearts enthrone Him, the hymn says, there let Him Subdue all it is not holy, all it is not true. Now, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. My testimony was converted as a young adult, as a 24 year old, I was converted from a background of dead, liberal, unbelieving Christianity. But I understand that many people in churches today have grown up in Christian homes young people, older people. There's always been that background. And if you've grown up in a Christian home, I understand it can be difficult sometimes to know, well, where do I stand with Jesus Christ? I mean, I believe things about him, and I've been told things about him, and I, I think they're true, and uh, I think he is the saviour, and I believe the Bible's true, and I'm happy to go to church every week and so on, but I'm not sure where I stand. Well, the teaching of Jesus here in the Bible 
is to the effect that you must be in earnest with Jesus Christ until you are sure you must be serious with him you must be thorough like those wise virgins who prepared with the extra oil you must be thorough in seeking Christ you must plead with him to make himself known as if it's the most important thing in your life as if it's the thing you must have more important than anything else more important than passing exams having a girlfriend or boyfriend having a job the most important thing you must pray to him in that way and keep praying say to yourself I must have him I must have Christ I must have Christ I must have Christ in my heart I must have him and know that he's mine he could be coming back tomorrow literally so I must have him today as my saviour living in me and if he's yours then you will enter that great wedding feast of the Lamb in that day and we will rejoice together with you you'll be presented blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy the Bible says the greatest wedding of all the one who calls you is faithful and he will do it let's pray together now Father God we thank you that Jesus Christ is the Savior and he is sufficient to save us from all our sins there are many but he is sufficient we thank you that the very same one who lived and died for our sins all those years ago and rose again to open the way to heaven the same one who's coming back in great power and glory that same one comes today to live in our hearts Lord we pray for those here today who perhaps are troubled by thinking of eternity and their future and we pray for those who should be troubled but then we pray for those who are yours that we Lord may know where we stand and be confident and give an assurance and a conviction that you 